Looking for a competency certification program in supply chain management? Consider short courses from the Malaysia Institute for Supply Chain Innovation, wholly owned by University Technology Mara UITM. Courses are claimable under the HRD Corp SBL CAS scheme. MISI's Supply Chain Management Program is world ranked number one by EduUniversal. For more information, visit misi.edu.my. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury, and this is Matt Splained. Landmarks don't mean much to someone who spends his life in quantum space. But we have managed to convince Matt to mark the 200th episode of Matt Splained with some kind of ceremony. Matt, what have we, in fact, learned, um, if anything, in these 200 episodes? Hey, Rich. Can't believe 200 in, but I, I guess what we've uh, learned is that uh, it's probably not a good idea to pay much attention to anything I say. Uh, <laughs> we've been doing the show, uh, as Matt's blamed, for obviously 200 episodes. That's about four years. But yeah. I've been doing it a variation of whatever this thing is for over 10 years now. Mm-hmm. So I thought it would be fun to look back over that decade, decade plus just to see what's changed and also to have a look at uh, how our attitudes to technology have developed and Mm. maybe look at some of the things that, you know, we love and hate the most about technology. But before we do that, um, I do have some changes to announce. We are going to be shaking up the format a bit. The past 200 episodes, it's been uh, uh, me and you or me and Jeff talking. So we're going to add some interviews with other people to the format. Don't forget the robots. Don't forget the robots. Oh yeah, and we had the robots too. Yeah, yeah. we'll have more of them, uh, more of those uh, later in the year for sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, we will be doing interviews. So I'll talk to people, and then you and I will discuss that kind of broader topic that was discussed mm-hmm. in the interview. Uh, I will also be putting longer versions of those interviews up on the all new Culture Pop Substack newsletter. Uh, mm-hmm. At the moment, I'm uh, I'm publishing exclusive audio and actual written content. I'm actually writing again about four times a week uh, and that will work as uh, sort of companions to and expansions of these shows uh, you can find the newsletter at uh, substack.com just search for culture pop that's with a k of course or just my name matt armitage and once you subscribe i'll pop into your inbox every few days yay now um what interviews have you got lined up well, uh, I'm not going to go into too much uh, detail about who we're going to talk to, but we've got stuff coming about female startup founders, uh, mm-hmm. stuff about crypto, virtual reality, and uh, hopefully our world as a, a simulation. Uh, obviously, there'll be some stuff about 3D printing. Now, it won't be in every episode, but I'll drop the interviews in as often as you know scheduling allows. And hopefully, the first one will be out in the next couple of weeks, as long as it passes the uh, quality control of uh, a certain perfectionist producer. I don't know what you're talking about. Absolutely no idea. And I get on with it. 
Right. Okay. So technology <laughs> is one of those things that, you know, we get used to really fast. We incorporate it into our daily lives, you know, really quickly, and we can't imagine living without it. We can't mm. really remember a time before it. So this is just, you know, a, a minor example, but can you imagine buying a new car today that doesn't have some kind of touchscreen in it? Mm. Uh, you know, not just that, it's becoming increasingly common for all the instruments in the cars to be mounted on displays, often touch touch screens, rather than to have uh, dials and gauges and uh, all that seemingly analog equipment. It hasn't been yeah. analog for, for years. It's all, you know, a, an analog a viewing unit that you see that's connected to digital uh, equipment. But, yeah. you know, I don't want to comment on whether any of this is good or bad, but when I started doing these shows a decade or so ago, that kind of equipment in a car, you know, the car would have been a unicorn. Uh, yeah. And in fact, uh, Tesla, I think, only released its first, uh, you know, fully in-house designed and produced car, which was the the Model S back in 2012. And the SUV, the Model X, that followed, of course, in 2015. Uh, EVs would have been a rarity in general in 2012. Yeah, you know, even as little as four years ago, a lot of the media coverage on electric vehicles was about how impractical they are, that yeah. they're really only for urbanites because of range issues and, you know, spotty charging networks. And that's changed a, an enormous amount in a lot of countries. Uh, there are even targets to phase out petrol and diesel passenger vehicles by the end of this decade in a number of European countries. And of course, China is leading in hybrid and uh, EV sales, as well as in that charging infrastructure, um, mm -hmm. just in terms of sheer numbers. Now, we haven't seen so many of those changes here in Malaysia yet. Uh, and despite government subsidies, prices for electric and hybrid cars are still, you know, relatively high. Although yeah. uh, Proton's entry into those markets, selling cars uh, under the uh, smart badge, could change that and make you know, electric vehicles more affordable. And of course, the infrastructure here is improving. The number of charging stations is growing. But yep. the biggest change, I think, is the vehicles themselves. You know, ranges of up to 500 kilometers on a single charge are now quite common. And there are some, you know, absolutely mind-boggling performance stats with even some of the uh, mid-range electric vehicles able to hit uh, zero to 100 kilometer an hour in under five seconds and of course the top end teslas hitting it in about two seconds which is as fast as an f1 car absolutely and for more information on vehicles please check out the show that i also do on a wednesday night called cruise control anyway yeah, I'm, I'm teaching granny <laughs> to suck eggs right now <laughs> good stuff though but yeah uh, but with that in mind um we, there's other touchscreen devices of course we have to talk about we use them every day it, it, our life would be for some people, meaningless without them. Yeah, absolutely. So we're on this uh, cusp of what's supposed to be the 5G revolution. And this is, you know, a, a technology that will allow us to adopt of um, uh, the other incoming technologies or to use a lot of the incoming technologies of what people are calling uh, the Web3. Now, yeah. we'll have uh, more of an exploratory episode on Web3 in an upcoming show. But um, over the past 10 years, we have become a touchscreen world. In fact, mm -hmm. you know, we've 
gone beyond being a touchscreen world, thanks to improvements in artificial intelligence and natural language processing, we can now speak to our devices and get them to search for information for us instead of having to look at those screens. Now, it's hard to put a name on how many voice-activated uh, uh, Internet of Things devices or smart speakers and, you know, all these other connected devices there are in the world. But it has to be in the billions. Uh, if you know the answer, do, you know, tweet me the answer. Mm -hmm. But um, according to research by the Radical Group published last year, there are estimated to be around 16 billion mobile devices, uh, or there are there will be estimated to be around 16 million mobile devices by the end of this year. Crikey. And I've, I know, and other estimates I've seen suggest that uh, of that 16 billion, around 6 billion are smartphones. And that means that uh, over 80% of the world's population, just in raw numbers, has some kind of smartphone or access to some kind mm. of smartphone. Let me ask you a question um, about um, smart devices, wearable smart devices. Are, are you disappointed by the progress in that market? Yeah, I guess a little bit. You know, devices like Google Glass have come and gone, but the idea of wearable screens is still being pushed. Uh, obviously, mm. when we talk about an immersive metaverse, there's that virtual reality component. But I'm less interested uh, in that in this context because the the screens in those worlds are, you know, walled off. Yeah. Uh, I saw a story just this week, actually, about an Indian startup called uh, Nemo Planet, which is developing a wearable computer called the Nemo. It doesn't have a VR-type experience. Uh, screens are mounted as overlays on the transparent lenses. And you can access up to six screens, individual monitors, at any one time, which makes it great for multitasking. Now, it's in a, a demo stage rather than a retail stage at the moment, uh, and it uses a custom mod of Android to power uh, the glasses, but it does work with productivity suites like Microsoft Office. Mm -hmm. And of course, at the more mainstream end of the market, Lenovo has its Think Reality uh, A3 wearable screens, which of course is a convoluted way of saying that, you know, I don't think this technology is done or dead. We're still mm -hmm. in that development phase. And I think it will be another part of our new hybrid work and entertainment experience that will see us transitioning, you know, pretty seamlessly between um, using no screens, that verbal computing, using wearable screens, and then going on to those more immersive, full virtual reality style experiences. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to ask you about the metaverse, as I know that's that's something of a, a developing topic for, for Matt Splain later this year. Um, can we talk about some of the more cultural implications, maybe, of the changes that we've seen in technology? Well, I mean, if you're talking about cultural changes, obviously one place to start is with streaming media, uh, the Netflix and chill mm. phenomenon. You know, there are mm. other streaming services available, of course, but Netflix is the poster child when it comes to streaming media. And it's, you know, it, it's hard to go back to that point, but the original Netflix was one of those subscription DVD by mail companies. Mm -hmm. uh, you ordered uh, your movie online and a physical rental DVD would be mailed out to you, which you then watched and returned. So you could even say that the company's launch of a streaming service back in 2007 in the US was an early startup 
pivot. Uh, and, you know, it, it was a risk for the company. You know, don't forget that in the early noughts, TV and film companies were still in that mindset that anything online leads to piracy. Yeah. Now, they built this kind of entente cordiale with Apple and its iTunes store, but there wasn't much sort of beyond that, really. Uh, and the industry hope, or it seemed that the industry hope, was very much that digital was just a fad, that it would go away, and that these companies could sell the same films to the same people in new formats every few years, which was the the business model that, you know, they, they'd been adopting for the last sort of 20 years. Mm. And Obviously, having that power to decide in which countries their content could and couldn't be released and when people could and couldn't watch it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Was Netflix an instant success? Well, by 2011, I think it was reported that uh, at some periods of the day, the company was accounting for up to a third of web traffic in the US. So wow. it you know, it had a, a pretty a, a amazing entry into the market. Uh, again, given its global impact, it's hard to believe that it was only in 2012 that the company actually moved beyond the US. Mm -hmm. uh, and that phrase, Netflix and chill, it was only, uh, I think, 2014 that it started to be commonly used. And of course, in Malaysia, we didn't have Netflix until 2016. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I can't believe that in order to watch uh, Lilyhammer, the... Uh, US Norwegian comedy crime show, I had yeah. to set up a US Netflix account and use a, a VPN, you know, just to, to watch that show. Mm -hmm. And now we have these subscription streaming services coming out of our ears. I mean, there are too many of them, if truth be told. Um, yeah. I mean, a question for you, including mm. music, how many streaming services are you currently paying for? I'm not going to embarrass you by asking you to name them, but how many are you currently paying Oof. for? Uh, one, two, six, uh, six. Yeah, exactly. I, I think for me it's about eight, although some of them are, are package deals like Apple TV and Apple Music, and that doesn't include the subscriptions to uh, VPNs and uh, mm, mm. storage bunkers and, you know, the, everything else that goes with it. But without going into or getting into that whole golden age of content argument, which of course this is, uh, you know, there, there's more stuff worth watching than there is time to watch right now. Sometimes I think that the the watch lists on these services are, are like a countdown to, to my eventual death. I'm <laughs> definitely sure that some of them are going to outlive me. Uh, and, you know, with the rise of Netflix and its cover, uh, cousins, the way we consume TV type content has changed. You know, the yeah. last decade has been all about the binge, with uh, Netflix especially dropping entire series in one go. I mean, I gorged on the latest season of the British crime drama Top Boy over the weekend. That that was just released last weekend. And I waded through the reality docu-thing uh, Bad Vegan a couple of nights ago, you know, just fully immersed. Yep, yep. I, I watched Bad Vegan too. More on that later, I think, uh, off offline. Uh, but anyway, have we reached um, peak binge, do you think, Matt? Certainly, I think there's an argument that early in the pandemic lockdowns, people binged themselves out. You know, they got yeah. bored with binging. And yeah. we're certainly seeing a lot more shows now that drop episodes weekly. Now, sometimes it's because those shows partner with a terrestrial broadcaster that still uses the, the weekly format. But platforms like Apple TV and Disney routinely use weekly drops for their shows. So, mm -hmm. um, 
to address the question, I think we're happy to do a mixture of the two. It's nice to be able to dive into something and just escape. But equally, having that anticipation for some shows is great too. I mean, I look forward to Mondays because on Monday night, I sit down and I watch the new episodes of The Walking Dead and Peaky Blinders. So mm. that is something that has changed the nature of Monday for me. Um, let me ask you a question that's kind of, I guess, close to our hearts. Do you think maybe we might be falling out of love with podcasts? I don't think so. Um, otherwise, of course, the show would be in a lot of trouble. Um, <laughs> but certainly, you know, early on in the pandemic, there was a decline in the number of people listening to podcasts because yeah. a lot of people listen on things like their commutes when they're moving around uh, at home. You know, a lot of people were furloughed and, you know, they were binging shows, hence that peak binge and you can't you can't watch and listen at the same time but that proved i think largely temporary what we saw over the past couple of years was especially an explosion in the number of podcasts yeah uh, you know i think I, I said at the time we started to call the show matt's blamed again because uh, we shifted to msp because there was suddenly a whole bunch of shows using the initials msp mm -hmm. uh, you know all of these businesses suddenly cut off from clients people are home with time on their hands and of course podcasting is cheap to do it's relatively accessible so what we're seeing more of is that there's this increasing fragmentation of what is still a growing audience so mm. it's simple you know more shows limited time fewer listeners per show mm. uh, as a, a recent bloomberg article points out i think it was january this year most of the top 10 podcasts are now more than seven years old now you know, having those smaller audiences, it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, a small devoted audience like the one we have, that can be fantastic. Yeah. And podcasting or whatever it is that radio becomes fits into our lives in ways that other media just, just don't. Mm -hmm. So pulling the circle around before the break, the, the reason screenless computing is so popular is because talking is that most natural setting for us to communicate. Mm -hmm. So audio-only content still fits into a lot of spaces in our lives that other forms of entertainment don't. Excellent news. Okay, um, when we come back, AI, human-machine hybrids, and our slow walk into crypto. You're tuned into Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Building Future Malaysia, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. Welcome back. And uh, to celebrate the 200th episode uh, we're taking uh, we're talking about some of the changes that we've seen in technology over the life of Matt Splained today um, what happened to your obsession Matt with human machine hybrids there was a lot of that it seems to have died off a little bit well I mean it, it hasn't it hasn't you know I don't talk about it so often or so implicitly because we approach it in different ways so work is still going on with things like brain-computer interfaces and as we saw with the example before the break of the Nemo glasses, developers are creating external hardware that would and could work with implantable chips. 
Uh, good old Elon is still working on his neural link technology, and he's promised that Tesla will create a humanoid robot by the end of this year. And all of this goes hand in hand with cloud computing. You know, we mm. increasingly use low energy processors to offload a lot of the raw computing to remote uh, servers. So all of those ingredients for these kind of human machine hybrids are still coming together. Coupled in with advances in CRISPR and gene editing techniques. and Oh, I mean, CRISPR is so amazing. I mean, it's one of those things that we accept but don't necessarily understand. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe we should do a, a, a show uh, on uh, how CRISPR works uh, and revisit that for another episode. For sure. But, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's incredible that this thing that has only been widely used for a decade is now commonplace uh, technology and terminology, mm -hmm. and that people are editing and hacking their own genes at home, you know, the biohackers. Uh, this isn't a suggestion that you try doing that, by the way, but we're already along that path to human augmentation, powered in no small part by advances in artificial intelligence. Yeah, that was the, the flip side of your uh, man-machine arguments, um, sentient machines. Yeah, so at uh, that time, my argument was that we shouldn't fear sentient machines. I still believe that to a large degree, although I'm increasingly doubtful that the machines will have been programmed with data sets that are actually good enough to enable them to make those uh, good or positive decisions. And the arguments that I made and continue to make about dumb AI, you know, the algorithms that determine so much of our lives now, uh, you know, things like what content we see on social and streaming media mm -hmm. platforms. My argument is still that those are far more dangerous. Uh, I think there were reports this week that in the US, at least, TikTok's algorithm uh, algorithms were not working well enough to differentiate Ukraine news from Ukraine disinformation. Mm -hmm. And the promotion of disinformation and its ability to polarize sections of societies has been disheartening to watch, especially over the course of the pandemic the last couple of years. Yeah. But there are positive steps being made. You know, lawmakers across the world do look determined to increase the regulation of big tech companies. But again, that's dependent on uh, those lawmakers coming up with, you know, sensible solutions. And that certainly isn't any kind of a done deal. But are we having those discussions about machine sentience? Increasingly, I, I think we are. Maybe not at the same kind of level that we're having discussions about football or, you know, that, that kind of thing. But I think it's right. something that people are increasingly aware of. Uh, more people work alongside AI-powered machinery now, uh, whether it's overseeing chatbots in customer services and intervening when a, a more nuanced or more in-depth approach is needed, you know, that, that human touch. Uh, and I think that actually happened to me last week. I mean, I can't tell for sure because the experience at bigger companies is supposed to be seamless, but uh, it was a query I had with a global payments company. I got the initial rote responses from the, the chat uh, with links to articles in the community help section. But mm -hmm. as soon as I couldn't find the answer, I think I was seamlessly switched to a person who incidentally did a great and really time-consuming job of solving my query. Um, beyond mm -hmm. that, we've seen the, the rise of telework. So, for example, in the US, a shortage of forklift and other types of commercial drivers has led companies to recruit remote control operators 
from other parts of the company. Now, some of those systems are enhanced with AI, some of them aren't, but we're seeing this increasing integration. And as we've said on previous episodes, where the AI is doing the kind of basic grunt work in everything from chemistry labs to loading docks, and the human workers come in to to make those sort of more important or final decisions. Mm. I guess that's kind of the point, though, you know, getting to the stage where the machines know enough to make the decisions for themselves. Yeah. So those are the conversations that I think are happening more often and not just at that kind of esoteric or esoteric rather or philosophical level, which is where a lot of the conversation has been for the last few years. It's that understanding that machine intelligence isn't like human intelligence and that machine sentience wouldn't necessarily be comparable to the kind of sentience that we have. Mm -hmm. Where we need to go next is to have those difficult conversations about how far we're willing to go in terms of giving machines autonomy. Mm -hmm. My guess is that we'll fall on the side of not allowing machines to become completely self-aware. Although there is that danger of the machines designing a machine that is sentient simply because they believe it to be more efficient. But mm-hmm. I don't think that's a conversation that we need to have today. Mm-hmm. Um, could we um, coexist with, with these sentient machines? Well, I mean, we can coexist with pretty much anything. As a species, we're resilient and we're really adaptable. But how we do that is another matter. So part of the discussions that we had about machine uh, sentience was the issue of rights. What rights would we accord to a machine? And what rights would a machine want to be accorded? You know, if it's sentient and self-aware, we can't allow it to be a slave to become a slave. But if we acknowledge that machine intelligence and the sentience that could emerge from within that sphere are very different to our own, what are those rights going to look like? Because we don't really know what machines would want. Would Mm. their idea of a bill of rights be, you know, uh, permanent access to power and no off switch. You know, we already have the issue of criminal liability coming to the fore with systems in uh, autonomous vehicles or self-driving modes in uh, electric vehicles. Uh, Sometimes these modes malfunction, they can cause property damage or injury and death. So who bears that responsibility? It's an issue now, even when it's obvious, because the machine system originates from a manufacturer. But how does that change when we start talking about machines that have and can deviate from their original programming that can make their own decisions? How do we then explain and justify those actions? Okay, uh, that's probably a good place to stop. Uh, stop you, in fact, and uh, force you to jump into crypto. Yay! Yeah, sure. I mean, there was an announcement this week in Malaysia that the uh, communications ministry is urging Bank Negara to accept cryptocurrencies as official tender. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not going to weigh in on that now, partly because I'm not a crypto expert and I haven't seen any details of what this would actually entail. But, you know, just at a surface level, I can't see that a country with the kind of capital and financial controls that Malaysia has uh, going uh, forward to adopt it external cryptocurrencies as they exist right now. Mm. Uh, What I think we're probably more likely to see is a liberalization of the exchanges. But Mm -hmm. certainly, I think Bank Nagara will still want to be able to see 
those money trails as they enter and leave the economy. Um, But, you know, and and this fact is astonishing to me, but back in 2012, the average price for a Bitcoin was $5. Um, Today, it's what, a a smidge (laughs) over 42,000. And even that is on a a downward trend. Um, And I I, I mean, I kick myself. If only I'd bought 200 of them back then. Um, uh, what would that be? Eight, nine million dollars. Um, but I didn't. So, you know, I, I'd better shut up. Mm-hmm. Um, but the last two years, especially, uh, has seen this enormous interest in anything with uh, crypto attached to it. Uh, and blockchain backed currencies are definitely, uh, I think, the future of money. Um, uh, are monetary authorities uh, likely to cede control then, do you think, to uh, these decentralized currencies? Well, that's the thing that I have my doubts about. You know, while the situation remains as it is, uh, where they're mostly being used and traded as speculative assets rather than a means of exchange uh, that are then traded back into traditional currencies in order to to realize that's that profit that you've made, I mm. think they will be tolerated uh, until, of course, they pose too much of a risk to wider economic instruments. Similarly, if we see a particular uh, a particular currency stabilize and emerge as an alternative payment system, I think then they will step in to closely regulate it. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, don't forget, I mean, the the ideas of uh, that Facebook had with Libra to, to launch a cryptocurrency were quickly stepped on by regulators in yeah. the US. And of course, don't forget that PayPal was launched with the idea of free and borderless movements of money. Uh, and national treasuries quickly made sure that that wasn't the case and that PayPal adhered to international regulations that uh, lawmakers laid down. Uh, well, let's talk about that, that thing that everybody's talking about right now then. Uh, do you see more potential in tokens um, like NFTs, for example? As alternative drivers and income sources, yes, I do. I mean, we're still in that Wild West phase, and I'm glad that uh, a lot of content creators are making money. I think it will calm down in a few years, uh, as much as everyone always tries to pretend they don't. All markets self-correct eventually. Mm -hmm. Uh, We live in an increasingly digital world, but our systems, especially when we talk about sort of uh, content creation, the systems are set up to reward those who create analog work primarily. Uh, So NFTs have enormous potential to individualize and identify uh, digital works so that they do have that transferable value. Uh, And it's also great that there's a royalty trail for those creators. They Mm -hmm. earn a cut of every transaction as their work changes hands. What I would like to see is a a mechanism where larger numbers of content creators can earn a stable living using NFTs. At the moment, there's a a small group making a lot of money, and there's everybody else who is really just picking up the crumbs. So I don't want to take away anything from anyone at the top of the pyramid, but a more mature market might make it broader and widen the number of people who can make a living working from the creation of digital content. Um, so what's your opinion uh, on whether or not we'll see NFTs uh, being extended into real-world applications? Uh, I think that's definitely going to to happen. Um, I, I think, first of all, we need to look at that whole process of uh, creating the tokens, creating NFTs. There's no reason for it to be so energy-intensive. And of course, 
making that easier would help to bring those token prices down. Mm -hmm. I think it will eventually be routine to watermark physical items with NFTs. You can imagine the use for contracts, for example, for um, land ownership, for verifying news items. That's something we've talked about before. So I think we're currently looking at, you know, like 1% of the use case scenarios for this kind of technology with what we have now. Compared to what I think we'll see uh, 10 years from now, I, I think NFTs will, or you know, their, their, their successor will be kind of ubiquitous. But I guess we're going to have to wait until the 500th episode anniversary to see if any of these uh, predictions come true, uh, by which time I'll be speaking direct to you via the chip in your head. That's that's a scary thought, that one. Anyway, thanks for that, Matt. Great show. Thanks a lot. 200. 200 indeed, indeed. Anyway, folks, um, if you missed any of these shows, including the previous 199 shows, uh, you can download the podcast wherever you download your podcast from. We recommend you use the BFM app. It's available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. And of course, you can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at CultureMatt or subscribe to the Culture Pop newsletter on Substack. More information about these shows. My name is Rich Bradbury for BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.